Broadcasting live, this is KMA Talk Radio. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of fine cigars. I like to smoke them like the Winston Churchill. Good morning to all our loyal listeners, libertarians, and lovers of the leaf. Welcome to KMA Talk Radio, episode number 379, broadcasting on October 27th. No, no, you're so wrong. It's 396. Did I say 79? Yeah. I'm a little little dyslexic. Good morning from the past. No, 396. What would I say? 397. I don't know where you're getting the seven from. I don't know. You want to know why? It's on the outline. (laughs) But either way. Maybe maybe she's right then. (laughs) Either way, welcome to KMA Talk Radio. I am your host, Honest Abe, along with my awesome co-hosts, the Southpaw from South Philly himself, Alex Tavella, and our awesome, the Italian scallion, Paul DeGracco. <laughs> I thought you had forgotten about that by now. No, Italian scallion. No, it's gonna... in. I don't think it went anywhere. Yeah. I was gonna hoping. Going to be around for a long time. Very, <laughs> very interesting week this week. A lot of stuff going on. You have no idea, man. I've been We've been potty training this week. Too. So on top of all the craziness, it's been an interesting. It's been an interesting poop and pee filled day. Week. The dog or the baby? <laughs> the baby. So so look honestly, I need a little bit of entertainment to start my weekend. Please do share with me your your potty training process. Well, it's not my process. It's a it's a world renowned author's process. Exactly. Just, just tell me the process that you ended up trying to go with. Uh, we do the we're doing um, the naked method. So oh, okay. my wife. Way, yeah. So the first couple of days he has no diaper on, no pants, nothing. He just walks around naked. Since it's been raining here in South Florida, we figured, you know what, we can't go outside. It's so unlike our weather here this time of year, but it's been pouring every day all this week. So we figured maybe we'll try to do it. And uh, yeah, there's been there's been some poop on the floor. There's been quite a bit of pee on the floor. He's he's basically peeing in the potty, all the, the regular toilets and in his little kid potty. And he's gotten like two poops in his uh, in his potty. Yeah. One of them, we were playing with cars on the floor in his room. And then he just stood up and he goes, poop. And there was, I, I mean, I'm not kidding you. I thought the dog left it because I was like, there's no chance this kid left this turd. So at first I yelled at the dog because she was in the room playing with us. I was like, no, bad. He's like, daddy, that's Axie poop. (laughs) He's always the easy one. He always comes first. It's poop that that gets a little tricky. Is that the case? I mean, I wasn't sure. It's for me. It was pee pee came easy for my son. Poop was a little, you know. I mean, we'll like if we're outside, I let him pee and, you know, just pee on the on the bush or something. But, you know, we're trying to teach him that, you know, you go to the toilet. If there's nobody around, then you can pee outside. But because his cousin, his cousin just drops his drawers. He goes to like somebody's house. We went to a birthday party with them when we were up on Long Island. 
and he drops his drawers in front of 50 people standing outside for a, a socially distanced party and starts peeing literally in a in a big group of people on the grass. And I'm like, I, I don't mind him peeing outside. I just don't want him to do it in like a public place like that. The grass in his pants. So when, he, <laughs> when he's peeing outside in the grass, are you just like taking him like for a walk around the neighborhood naked or? No, no. Well, <laughs> actually, yeah. In the actually, we have yes. How do you? <laughs> you I put him in the wheelbarrow or the or the bike, so you can't really see the, it. Like he has his in the nude. In front you really, oh wait, wait, wait! You really do take him outside naked? I thought, I thought yeah, we have. No, we have. We have. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he's doing good. I don't know. He's in there now. I don't know if he uh, if he had a successful poop this morning or not. But we were waiting for that before the show started. So I'm I'm hoping. Well, if you hear a cheer in the background, that's what happened. That's that's, that, that, that's a big deal. Course. Speaking of yeah. poop, speaking of poop, anybody watch the debates? Oh yeah, I did. It actually yeah. wasn't as poopy as I would have expected it to have been after the last debacle. Honestly. Right, which made which made it much more boring than the first one, unfortunately. But uh, well, I mean, well, that's true. But it was more of a debate where they actually discussed issues instead of going back and forth. I mean, towards the end of it, Trump did start to get back to you know the 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 back and forth. But I have to say, man, I, he Trump seemed almost presidential. I mean, yeah, Abe and I were well. texting during well, it. The consensus, I think, across everybody, is people a little bit more surprised by Trump's behavior this time around. You know, so yeah. I think it's because yeah. I've heard from a lot of people, Biden did not look well to me. Very is pale. He looked, yeah, he looks like an old Very man. He looked, yeah, he looked pale. He looked like a few times he was, you know, out of it, and then there was a weird moment there where he just started getting angry. Did you notice yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, it was a little weird. We really, it was, yeah. really was uh, a little weird, but yeah, it was nice it, being semi-civil, right? I, I, I have to say, I said to my wife, when, when Biden was the vice president under Obama, he was known as like Joke and Joe. Like he was smiling right. everywhere he was. He was the prankster in the White House. Right. He was just like the, the cool, calm, collective, like fun guy. And now he is, I mean, now he's got the pressure of the seat, potentially, and I, I don't know how he's dealing with the pressure. It looks like it's really getting to him. He looks very frail to yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, and him, only, and him and Trump are not that much off in age, right? I mean, no, they're not. They're not. A couple years, I think. Couple Who's years, older? I think he's. I think Biden's like seventy-eight, and Trump's like seventy-six. I'll find out. Five or yeah, I don't know. But my one beef with the, the debate was when they were kind of going back and forth. And even when they were going back and forth, they weren't really, like, killing each other. Like, the last one, you know, one was talking, the other was talking. The moderators seemed to want to, like, move it on. And we didn't get a, too much back and forth between them. And uh, she just wanted to keep going to the next question. I think that, I think that was your job. Yeah, but, I mean, it's a debate. I kind of want to hear them debate a little bit, not just answer your question. I mean, let's face it, it's not a debate. One side tells lies, the other side tells more lies. It's words could talk over the other guy. I mean, honestly, I, I, at this point in civilization society, the debate has got to be the most pointless thing because I really don't believe it's swaying anybody. I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I know a lot of people are saying that. One, uh, Biden is 77 and Trump is 74, so Biden is older. 77 is old, man, to deal with pressure. I mean, that's I, – I don't know. But I'll tell you this. Um, 
I, I the one thing I've always agreed with with Trump is the whole political like lifelong politicians, and and he kept bringing it up. I mean, he's like, obviously, this for forty years, you have all these plans. You had everyone's ear. You had the ear of the top guy in the office. Why wouldn't you have done this then? Honestly, I, I don't even think he realized the brilliance of the statement in that moment because I think it's that exact statement that won him the presidency, right? People are just getting sick of the career politician and, and you know, and what they entail in this whole, you know, wheel that they develop over decades, you know, of, of whatever pocket lining or whatever. And that's his be- that's honestly his best platform because it's the truth. You know, I mean, people who voted for Trump, I think, just wanted the anti-politician. You know, most right. of them. So. Right. I thought that was a very sharp statement from him at the time. No, it really was, and 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 it's true. I mean, when when this country started, none of the politicians were career politicians. They they came in to do their work, and then they went back to they went back, right. or lawyers. They or, went back to their farms or whatever they did. Correct. It, it was never meant to be, be a, a life, a full time job, and yeah. I, and I agree with that. You know, and the other thing that I keep bringing up that I posted on Facebook and I got a lot of comments on is what John Adams said. In the, in the first years of the presidency, that his greatest fear is a two-party system that divides the country in half. And, and I, I, I agree with that. There's, there's no common, as, as bipartisan as you try to be, you're either with one side or the other 99% uh, of the time. I, I'm the king of third party. I am the king of third party. I Are you an independent? I, get, I, am, I am an independent, libertarian. I get left at my vote. I voted for Jorgensen, and I don't care if she's going to lose, but I still voted for who best aligns with my ideals. Okay. I, I mean, I commend that, Alex, man. I've, I've voted Libertarian before. And I put my money where my mouth was. I say, I was going to say, he actually contributed to her campaign. Oh, really? Wow. I've never contributed to a political campaign in my life. Oh, I have. But speaking of campaigns... It's the worst there thing was... you can ever do, by the way. The emails and the texts never stop once you go oh. you want. Did, Never. It makes it makes my day job so great when you donate because now we know we can get money out of you. So we run a right. lot of those political emails. That's <laughs> oh, hilarious. Never stops. Tax and never stops. Yeah. Uh, speaking of campaigns, I don't know if you'd call it a campaign, but there was uh, big news going back to our industry this week, Abe. You mean the shot heard around the cigar or the world? The cigar. Yeah. World? It was uh it was an interesting an interesting couple of days there with, between uh. Skip Martin of Roma Craft and Jeff Borshowitz, our friend at uh, Corona Cigar Company. Oh yeah, that was fun. But but really, Skip started it, right? No, well, I mean, look, it's funny because honestly, and you know, I, I already determined I was gonna, I was gonna tell my opinion today on this whole thing because my phone literally has been blowing up since that night. And, I bet. Know, instead of regurgitating the same story <laughs> hundreds of times. I just thought I'd share it here. And I've heard a lot of my friends in this industry on both sides of the argument, guys vehemently, you know, what's really funny is it's, it's this is kind of a personification or just a, a, just a, a reenactment of what's going on in, in our politics today, man. It just became like these two sides of people who adamantly, you know, felt that Roma Craft was in the right and other people came to Corona's side and, um, you know, when your phone starts blinging like that, I, I think Coop talked about last night, he was in the middle of doing a podcast and his phone just starts blinging. <clears throat> but my opinion is on this. I mean, I, 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 I know both these guys pretty well enough. I, obviously, I know Jeff way, way, way longer and more intimately. 
I mean, um, yeah, you're you're friends with Jeff, right? Yes, I mean, yes, yeah, friends with his family. I mean, my yeah. wife, wife. In fact, I consider myself very good friends with Tanya, and so we're close. But so, taking my personal opinion aside, right? Just as somebody in the industry looking in, here here's my take on it. So, I personally skip. Martin was the reason I kind of backed off engaging or talking about anything polarizing politically on social media because I even found myself, and, and we talked about this during during private messages. I was like, look, I started becoming nasty. Like I was getting a little nasty with Skip, and I um, you know, uh, I just found myself being the human being that I'm really not naturally. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I actually mentioned, we, Skip and I talked about it during PMs. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm just done. And I just don't engage anymore because there, there's really no good to come out of it. You're not changing anybody's mind today, right? Nobody's right. really, I don't know anybody on the fence. I really don't know anybody that's really on the fence right now politically, right? Either they're really just left or the right. I mean, I haven't met somebody who really hasn't made up their mind. So um, I just don't engage. But I also believe when, when you make it a habit that you're out there and you're constantly on your page, which you know your people follow, right? People following Skip Martin page, I'm going to assume that 90% of them don't know him personally, right? They're a fan of his product. So right, right. the people who are following his page, it's not like his family and his local friends. These are people all over the country, all over the world. They follow him because of his product. They may lean left. They may lean right politically. And when you constantly make polarizing posts, the assumption there is to engage in some kind of conversation, right? So unless you just want to put stuff out there so that, you know, 100 people can tell you how awesome your perspective is. I mean, it's not what happens no matter what. So Skip is one of these guys who constantly posts polarizing posts and stuff like that. And Jeff is another one. Jeff Jeff uh, uses his platform very, very much to express his political point of view, which there's nothing wrong with. But I think once you do that, it's like sending an invitation out in the world to say, tell me why I'm wrong. You know, I, I just think that's an inherent assumption when you make it. It's posts. almost baiting people to fight with you. I will. I, I, I think there are people who enjoy that. That's their yeah. interaction of the day. Right. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so I, 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 you know, I don't think, I don't, think i mean skip skip's position is he feels like he was personally attacked like you know because he even said to me last night you know i'd like to see how you'd respond if someone said you were the worst thing for the cigar industry and i kind of said to him i said you know it's not the same thing i know it's not the same thing but you said i was bad for the cigar industry once you said that that my i think his exact to paraphrase was my my lack of support of going to the trade show is bad for the industry you know, and then I, I, I just explained to him that, look, I may not go to the trade show as much anymore because of family and personal and business obligations, but I've said I'm the board. I've been heavily involved in the CRA. I've been avoided, uh, awarded an award from the CRA. I've been to D.C. I mean, I've done, I, I, I've given the industry my blood, and, you know, and then he kind of understood that. So, I mean, I kind of would have handled it the same way, you know, I mean, I, I kind of I kind of wanted to do something like this in a very civilized manner because there are now polarizing opinions in our cigar industry. Oh yeah. Like, Twenty years ago, I couldn't find anybody really who's, you know, for the Democratic Party in the cigar industry because what people don't understand because you know a lot of people say keep politics out of it. I understand Jeff's passion 
for the politics. And it, it may affect guys like me more whose livelihood is affected by it because I've said all along, I love what I do. I love this industry. Wouldn't trade it for anything. But it's sad that my only threat to the day-to-day livelihood of my business is my own government. And that's been the case historically. So, um, you know, if you look over time, our greatest threats continually have come from democratic legislation, whether it be S-CHIP. S-CHIP was vetoed by George W. Bush um, twice, I think. I don't definitely once. And then it was the first, one of the first things that Obama enacted. And, you know, people nowadays don't even know what I talk about. Some people when I talk about S-CHIP. But there was an excise tax on a cigar that, that comes in this country. No matter what, they just charged four and a half cents. And they wanted to raise it just like overnight to 50%, 50, from four and a half cents to 50% of the wholesale value right? with a $10 cap, which was like the most, like literally like absurd tax you could have ever thought of. And the industry, that's when the first time in my career I saw this industry become polarized and people got together and said, look, we can't just like sit back and watch these laws get passed. And Jeff's been one of the premier guys. I mean, Jeff could easily have a career in politics. He's been one of the premier guys who constantly has gone to Washington, D.C., constantly is on top of it, fighting it all the time. Operation Choke Point was another Obama uh, legislation that basically they tried to stifle the way businesses like ours, they put us in categories like um, porn and gun shops and whatever, where they stifled our ability to try to have business uh, financial institutions work with us. I had had an account with a bank, seven accounts at the time, um, one for each business and a couple personal ones, um, with PNC Bank, 17 years, and I got a letter from the bank saying I had 30 days to close all my accounts. Now I was fortunate enough they gave me notice, but some guys' like merchant accounts got shut off overnight. And for what? Right. It's a legal right. product. So, uh-huh. you know, and then there was this whole FDA debacle, which was another Obama, you know, he gave the FDA the power to regulate tobacco. So, you know, I don't believe that you should choose a presidential candidate solely based on your cigar passion, right? There's a lot more to the country and whatnot, but I understand Jeff's passion about how he feels the Democratic Party is a threat to our livelihood because that's what we live through every day. So I don't think his statement to skip was, you know, you're one of the, you're a great threat or the top five threats to the cigar industry was such a bad statement. I mean, maybe I wouldn't have said it like that, but, you know, Skip has a great audience. He has a great following. It's a lot of people yeah. love him. A lot of people love him personally. Love his cigars. So, his voice, you know, to to guy like Jeff Skip has a voice, and I and I think Jeff feels that sometimes he doesn't understand that that this party has been very detrimental to our livelihood and our passion. But I also believe that Skip is the type of guy who it, he he could care less. I mean, it, how he feels about the country and what's important to him is more important that. And I think he may have said this, that he'd just rather see his business get destroyed and start over again doing something else. So I don't know the public thing, because, look, I don't I don't like Facebook flame wars, right? You, you post, you got to go back, and it ends up tying all day. It's, it's just not a really adult method of conversation. So I think Jeff's, I think Jeff's request for a debate, if you really, I mean, if we're, we're going to talk about this on Facebook, let's just talk about it in person. And let let people in our industry have it. And I had reached out to do something like Skip, honestly, back in August. I PM'd him. I mean, Paul, you know, we talked about it. We wanted to oh, do yeah. a, 
we want to do a, a special because there, there are multiple polarizing views in our industry, right? Guys who definitely are out there talking who outwardly lean left, outwardly lean right. Yeah. And, um, you know, honestly, I think when you engage in that kind of stuff, you shouldn't be offended or hurt, and especially if, 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 you know, you could say I disagree. You know, you, you know, Skip Martin could have a position. So, I mean, honestly, I don't like it really happened. I mean, sure, it was entertainment and, and it, you know, yeah, everybody was enthralled for a day or two. Oh, man, I spent hours reading all the comments and, and, and the memes on both pages. But honestly, stuff, yeah. like this, stuff like this is not good for our industry. You know, it really isn't. Right. And right. I, I honestly think that that kind of a business statement, uh, because, you know, now that now when Skip made his post, he took a business statement, really, and he kind of put out there publicly, which I don't, I wouldn't have done. So, you know, if, if I had that moral high ground or whatever position, um, I would have said, I would have said, you know, I just would have cut the account. It didn't need to be all out. It's there. no small account for him either, well, I'm sure. You know, here, here's my thing. Here's like just from an outsider's point of view, you know, I don't know Skip or Jeff. I'm friends with Jeff on Facebook. And I mean, I see Skiff enough, enough all over Facebook. And it just seems like Skiff is more willing to engage in personal quarrel. Like he wants you to feel bad that you don't think like him. Which uh, is never going to end well, you know? Like you said, we're not changing anybody's mind, but I don't need you to try to make me feel bad about my personal beliefs. And it, I just see a lot of personal quarrel in, with Skip well, in the comments with different people. I definitely don't think there are any victims in this. I think there's, there's a lot of people who may think that Skip Martin was a victim. I don't think he's a victim. I mean, Skip has outwardly said that anybody who supports Trump is basically a hate. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's always, he always brings That's a huge statement to make. I mean, I, Absolutely. Honestly, honestly, I'd be more offended by that kind of a statement if you said, you know, I'm I'm the exact hate, racist, whatever, because I support this person than for you to say I'm a threat to the industry. I mean, I mean, so I don't think there's any victims here. I think it's, it was a little bit shameful. I think the industry would have better off. It didn't happen. But um, that's kind of my take on it. I, I, I don't think there were victims. Um, I, I think both both guys are going to move on with no issue at all. Um, you know, Skip Skip won't feel it because you know while everybody you know everybody talks about Skip's um, oh he sells all his cigars. Well, you know if you make X number of cigars and you don't want to make any more, it's not that hard to sell them. Right. So it's not like that's a big feat or accomplishment. You know, if I if I wanted to only sell a hundred cigars a day, I'd sell out every day and be a hero. So you know, I mean, the, the, Skip's model doesn't say I want to grow, I want to get, which is fine. That's all, but. You know, whatever Jeff doesn't buy, some other little shop's going to line right up and pick up that product because that's all he wants to do. He limits his production. So there's never that pressure that I have to meet this demand of growth for Skip. So he gets to lay back and sell his cigars. You know, I don't know. I don't know if that's a feat or an accomplishment, but it's a model that works for him. God bless him, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll just I'll, – I'll end with saying I, I definitely feel like I, I know uh, – Tanya a lot better than I know either one of them. And I really, after, after having her on the show and speaking to her so much before, I feel like I, I trust Tanya's opinion uh, a lot more than, than either one of them, to be honest. And, and she's a, she's a super bright lady. She's, she's really smart. She, and, and what's funny is she posted that she is a, a registered Democrat. She said, so if I can figure out how to live under the same roof with my husband, <laughs> we can figure out how to get along. And I appreciated that because 
like like she says, like all the guys are saying in the comments, we all are going to have different differentiating opinions. You know, it, it is what it is. We're you know, but we need to be. Go ahead. Tolerance, tolerance has left this country, and that's really the bottom line. Uh, yes, yeah. exactly. The, the, the difference. No, it's sad. The difference. The difference in this is, I don't believe there's a scenario where Jeff would have went to Skip and said, "I'm not carrying your stuff because of, you know, who you support, who right. you believe." And I don't, and I certainly don't think he would have posted it online. If he no, would. he definitely would have. He wouldn't have. Um, um, so, so tolerance is is honestly what just humanity has lost, right? You know, there was a post I saw the day. I can't understand how people can think this way. Well, people have thought differently for centuries. It's what we do. I don't know why you have to understand why somebody thinks the way they do. I don't understand what my wife's thinking almost every day. You know, I, <laughs> right? I mean, really, man, I, I can't comprehend it. In fact, the the, uh, the the success to our marriage is I stopped trying to figure it out. <laughs> that's what you do as a man in the beginning. You're like trying to find the rationale. I don't understand. You just give up and you say that's yep. the way it is. That's how they think and that's how she you wants to feel. You have to, to accept, them, accept them for who they are. And I respect it and I move on. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I, I think though, I, th I think this, this polarization is the unforeseen result of social media and what it's become. Social I think you might be right. Social media I mean, and media. Before, and media. Absolutely. But even even before, you know, prior to social, who did you argue with? People in your circle, the people in your neighborhood, your neighbor, your sister, your own Thanksgiving dinner. You know, now I'm arguing with some guy in Kentucky or, you know, across the globe. And that's kind of become so, you know, we didn't I don't think we really engaged with so many people. So like, I can't believe this many people think this way. Well, we didn't really engage with that many people prior to social media and it's uh you know one of the unforeseen results of that it's very funny randy bush asked me about my hashtag but it's funny because i kind karoma. of now karoma yeah i've kind of in, 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 inducted it into my vocabulary i literally said that on the whim man i'm like wow that was like a karoma smackdown i'm like oh man i gotta post this i can't believe i just said that so yeah that was a hashtag i made up the other day but enough on this topic. That's my opinion for those many people who wanted to know and asked. At the end, ultimately, life moves on. We move on. And uh, it is what it is. Don't think it was our brightest moment as an industry, honestly. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like both of them. I, I respect both of them. I hope that we can all just move on from this. Oh, yeah, they'll move. One thing is one thing we've learned in this industry. It moves. It moves on. So. Right. Um, well, we have another really, I mean, Awesome guest this week for our Meet Your Maker segment. Um, got we had big hitters, and uh, here's another big hitter. Today's guest has been distinguished with numerous accolades and awards, starting from very, very humble beginnings. He built one of the industry's most successful brands. After he sold that company, guess what? He did it again. Please give a KMA warm welcome to Ernesto Perez Carrillo, Jr., Junior, good morning, guys. How are you? How are you doing? Good morning. Sir? Good morning. I'm doing great. You know, it's um, it's uh, you know, like you said, I've had uh, a lot of opportunities to uh, do a lot of things in this industry, and you know, at the end of the day, I was listening to you guys, uh, you know, talking about the social media and everything that's going on, and at the end of the day, you know, this is the greatest country in the world. You know, uh, that we can do this, that, we, you know, we can uh, have different opinions. Uh, and the important thing is, you know, we got to listen to everybody's opinion, respect mm -hmm. it, 
But at the end of the day, you know, we can't fight over that, especially uh, through the times that we're going now with this COVID-19. You know, this is a time for uh, for everybody to really come together. And I think, you know, Abe, you would agree with me, you know, the, the, uh, the industry, our customers, you know, our loyal followers have really you know, stepped up and, 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 and basically, basically kept us in business because, you know, in spite of everything that's going on, you know, the cigar industry now is, uh, is booming uh, as far as, uh, you know, I can see. So, but anyway, thank you. Thank you very much for, uh, you know, having me on. I, uh, I think it's been like, probably like five or six years since I was on your show. Long time, my friend. And, long time, yeah. We, yeah. I went, came down to your studio, remember? Yep. And this is this is this is the new world, you know. This is what uh, it was all about now, you know. So, uh, Zoom and uh, Streamyard and and you know whatever else is out there. So it's great, it's, you know. It's great, it's and I, I appreciate you guys having me on today. Sure, COVID's definitely changed the way the way uh, the world inter interacts and will communicate. I'm sure for a very very long time. Um, oh yeah. I want. I'd like to start with your humble beginnings. It's been so long since you had a, been on the show, Ernesto. Your father was born in Cuba, roughly in 1904, yeah? Correct, yes. What I just learned recently I didn't know is that he was actually a senator in 1954 and 1958? Correct. He was, uh, uh, he became, uh, he was elected to the House of Representatives, you know, back in 1948. And then in 1954, he ran for the Senate for the uh, province of Pinal de Rio, and he got elected. Oh. And then in 1958, he ran again. He got elected again. Now, as we all know, in 1959, Castro came in, and being the fact that he was, uh, uh, you know, a politician, uh, we had to uh, leave the country that that year. And uh, I got here. He left. I think it was like um, uh, Castro came in in 59 January. He, he left around. I think it was February March. And then my mother came, and then I came uh, in April of 1959. But, uh, you know, one thing about my father in those days, you know, in those days, needless to say, uh, politics was a whole different, uh, especially in Cuba. And one of the things that I'm so proud, I'm so proud of, of you know, my father and my family, was the fact that, you know, when we came to this country, we didn't have anything. And if you see in, in, in our uh, Perez Carrillo series, you see a picture on one side of my mother in the tobacco field, and you see on, my, uh, on the side that my daughter's on, which is the right side, you'll see the Freedom Tower. And when we came to this country, uh, this country took us in, the United States took us in, and we would go there like every week and get our, our, uh, you know, our ration of uh, powdered milk and uh, peanut butter. And, and you know, to this day, peanut butter is my favorite food. And, you know, they would give us a little money. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's simple. Yeah. So that's it. So, you know, uh, and this is what, you know, this is what, what this country is about, you know, helping those. And like I say, you know, if, if you work hard and you live by this country's principle, because, you know, one thing you can do is, you know, try to come into anybody's home, in this, in this case, the United States, and impose your, uh, your beliefs uh, when you're a guest, you know, it doesn't work that way. And I think, you know, and, and the Cuban community, when we came back in the 59s or 60s, 60s, uh, you know, even late 80s, you know, we were, um, we were taken uh, with open arms. And I think, uh, you know, we, we've, a lot of Cubans have succeeded, and uh, not only Cubans, but a lot of other 
uh, people from other nations have succeeded because of the simple principle of, you know, you got to work, you got to work hard, and you got to do what's right by this country. And, you know, uh, I agree with yeah. you completely. My, 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 my parents are immigrants, right? I'm first generation mm -hmm. born here. And I've kind of always felt that maybe not financially or not, you know, society, socialistically wise, you know, um, but I always felt that my dad or my, you know, my uncles and my relatives or immigrants in general almost have a advantage as far as drive in this country because they have a perspective that's different from the people who are actually born in this great country, right? Mm -hmm. They've seen life without how bad its ways can be and right. how lack of opportunity really affected their daily lives. So there's a different level, I, sometimes I really feel, of appreciation for what this country has to offer and the opportunities that exist here from people who do come from other countries. And, um, you know, it, well, it's, we've had that on the show before. A lot of guys are, like, you know, a lot of guys will say, you want to see socialism? You, go live socialism. Keep saying that you want it. Live it and see what it's like. And then oh. you're not going to want it anymore. <laughs> Listen, I just, I just hired, literally Friday, this first day is Monday. I just hired a, a Venezuelan who came here on asylum. Um, wow. Yeah, and he could tell you how awesome that country was until the last, you know, decade or, you know, whatever it was, 10, 15 years. But um, he made a parody, a parody video on YouTube, and they put a bounty on his head. Got shot twice in the leg and the stomach. Uh, really? This is the guy we just hired? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Uh, he got shot. Oh, my God. Got shot twice, dude. Crazy story. This guy. I have so many questions for him. Oh, he's a really <laughs> interesting guy. But he, got, he got shot. There was a bounty on his head. The United States gave him asylum in, instantly. He, he came to this country. Um, then they slowly bought. Then they bought over his wife and his son. So they figured they got away from all this violence, right? And his son. They live in Parkland. His son was there during the Parkland shooting. This poor guy. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah, but I mean. But you know, here's a perfect example of countries that 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 you know d destroy people, and you come here and you get a whole different appreciation of how great this country is. And honestly, right. it's just sometimes, honestly, look, it's it's really sometimes very hard to to look at this country and see how just people have become. I just I, I say that they've lost their humanity. No one can accept anybody else's way of life or tolerate their views or how they think. It doesn't align with them anymore, and I just don't know. How it got this way? Well, you, you know, you know, uh, I, Abe, I think in, in the world we live now, where everything's, you know, instant gratification, uh, I think people expect that, you know, in all essence, you know, I mean, you have the, uh, you know, the uh, Amazons of the world where, you know, you ask for something, it's there in an hour, two hours, or a day, or whatever. And I think people expect, you know, this in everything, in life also, you know, they expect that if they're going to go uh, and work, uh, they expect within a year, you know, they're going to be doing um, as well as, you know, a person has been there 10 years. You know, in some cases it does because, you know, the person is very talented. And needless to say, talent always is going to, uh, uh, in my case, and in, in what I believe in, is going to be uh, seniority, to put it, you know, for lack of a better word. But, you know, you got to pay your dues and uh, and everything, you know. Yep. Uh, for instance, you know, when you look at some of the great, you know, brands that uh, that we see in the industry now, 
you know, some of those brands may may have not been around, uh, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But, you know, maybe the persons, the, the family of those persons that uh, own those brands have been in the business. You know, in our case, we my, my, my grandfather and his brother, they used to make uh, uh, cigars in the, in the sidewalks of uh, Havana. Uh, it used to sell for like, you know, four or five cents or whatever. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's not something that you're just going to come into this business and, and expect everything to happen overnight. You know, it takes time. But when you have a, a uh, I guess you could say a tradition, a lineage of, of your family that's been in the business for so many years, you know, and then all of a sudden you succeed, you know, it's, it's, it's paying your dues. You know, you, 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 know, you pay your dues, your family pay your dues. And this is what's happened with a lot of the, uh, you know, the better well uh, known companies that you, that you see nowadays in the, in the industry. So, there's there's definitely a testament to that, and and and, and uh, respecting the heritage and history behind your country, your family, mm-hmm. and your organization. You know, but and speaking of which, you know, because you know, I know the stories of my father coming over as an immigrant and how he started out. What was it like when you guys first came over? I mean, your your father at the time of, of you fleeing Cuba was a senator. Correct. Know, yes. What did what did what did he do when he he and how old were you at this point? I was seven years old. Okay. So did you did you flee Cuba directly to America? Yes. Uh, we could not leave. All the three of us could not leave at the same time. So, like you know, my father first uh, left first. And then my mother, and then I came. As a matter of fact, there's a picture of uh, me getting off the uh, the plane, I believe it was, or yeah, getting off the plane or on the plane, something like that. Uh, Pan American, uh, when I got to uh, to this, um, you know, to this country. Wow, Pan Am. And uh, what happened was, you know, we used to live. Uh, I don't know if you know. I guess you're familiar with uh, Miami downtown Miami, right? Mm-hmm. You know where oh, yeah, Miami Dade right. Junior College is. Yes. Okay, so when we got to the United States, uh, you know, we lived in a hotel that was basically in that property. And I remember that uh, in, in those days, you know, we used to go to, uh, there was a movie theater, and I never forget that movie theater called the Dixie Theater. And it used to cost 25 cents to, you know, go see movies. So, you know, we'd go like, uh, you know, on the Saturdays or the Sundays to see the movies. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, my father, he had, you know, he had family here. Uh, and uh, he used to, he started working in a lot of odd jobs. You know, he started working when he first got here. He started working in a uh, shoe factory called Swather Shoe Factory, where he used to get paid, I think it was, was it 28 or $38 a week? Uh, but my father was a very, uh, you know, he had a, a, he was always, his attitude was always, you know, to, uh, you know, not complain. I never heard this man complain. I never heard my mother complain. It was always, you know, go out there and see how we can make uh, ends meet. So what he would do, he would buy all the old or, or second uh, tennis shoes, uh, sneakers at that time. And then he would go to to like a, a flea market on Saturday and sell them for, you know, two or three bucks, make a buck or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then after that, he went into, uh, he got into the uh, restaurant. He, he uh, rented a restaurant. In downtown Miami, uh, which failed, and then he uh, he went into uh, uh, he rented a bar, the Kirby Bar, in downtown Miami also, oh. and that one he kind of kept for I think it was something like three or four years, and you know that also after a while that also failed, 
uh, I remember, uh, you know, at that time we used to, uh, he went, uh, he started doing catering business uh, where he would go and, you know, buy food from a catering. Like you see now the, uh, what's that, Weight Watchers and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Well, at that time, you know, a lot of people that were, Miami was big in factories, you know, there was a lot of uh, um, textile business going on here. You know, there was, there was a cigar business also here. There were around in 1966, 67, there were about 28, 30 chinchales, you know, which had anywhere from three to 10 cigar makers. So, I mean, and there were all Cubans, you know, all Cubans that came in from the old country, uh, if you want to say. And anyway, but I used to go out with him and make these deliveries. And at that time, I had started playing drums. I would take my drumsticks and start practicing on the the, uh, car, uh, how do you say, the car dashboard. And he would look at me and and say, (laughs) what the hell is this about, man? (laughs) I mean, he wanted me to come with him, you know, but this was one of the uh, things, you know, he had to hear me play my my, uh, my drums or whatever. And then in 19, uh, it was about 67, he started working at a uh, factory, small factory on Flagler called Tropical Cigars. Yeah. And the El Credito factory, which uh, is, is, you know, was on A Street, uh, at that time was called La Roma. And it was up for sale. And, uh, you know, my father uh, uh, said, he, you know, he wanted to buy it, but he, he didn't have any money. I mean, you know, my mother, she was a seamstress. And she was really, and I have to say this, you know, it, uh, she's pulled us out of so many difficult times during that time. And even when I took over the factory, that you know, it, it was incredible. So she had, um, you know, she had I think it was like a thousand dollars, and that was the the amount that he put down for the factory. The factory was five thousand dollars, and he had one cigar maker, and um, so that's basically how he started in in the business. You know, with this uh, one cigar maker. I have to ask because you mentioned on your A Street, your grandfather. Uh, it rolled cigars in the streets of Cuba and whatnot. Right. Your dad was a politician. Did, did he get into any of the cigar? Uh, well, no, yeah, yeah. He, the the, he the way he got into that, yeah, I should have gone into that, but the way he got into him, he was about 24. He started working for a uh, an American company called Cuban Land. And what they used to do is they used to buy tobaccos from the, uh, the growers, you know, and... Um, Pinal del Rio, and, you know, the different areas where they grew tobacco in Cuba. And they would process this tobacco and sell it to the factories. You see, a lot of the factories in Cuba, I would say probably all of them, they didn't have, they didn't have their own fields. Like, you know, it's the case now. Um, so these were the companies that would buy the Oliva, the Oliva company, you know, uh, Cuban land. They would go and they would buy tobaccos from all the, you know, with contracts, of course. And then they would Process the tobacco and then sell it to the uh, to the companies in uh, in Cuba. And there's a long, you know, there's a very interesting uh, uh, thing about that is that you know once they got you know, uh, for instance, the, the thing of the tercios, which you know we talked about in the in the uh, the Encore, which is you know the cigar that the guy that number one cigar of the year in 2018. Um, they used to put their, their fillers and instead of bales, once they got to the factories, they would put them in, in, uh, in barrels. And, uh, you know, a lot of those barrels, people think that they were like, you know, uh, rum barrels or, you know, specialty barrels. No, this was basically things that, that, you know, uh, 
potatoes. You know, they used to put potatoes in some of these barrels. Really? So, I mean, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because they, you know, uh, if you ever talk to uh, Benjamin Mendez at his factory, they have over 5,000 of these bales, of these barrels. And that's where they would age the tobacco, you know, during that period. So, I mean, there's so much history and, 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 and you know, things about, you know, the old days in Cuba that uh, it's fascinating. And this is basically what he used to do. You know, he used to buy this tobacco uh, and through his company, through Cuban land, and then they would sell it to the, uh, the you know, the different uh, cigar companies in Cuba. One thing that um, in 1948, he got elected to the, uh, to the House of Representatives, and uh, there was a factory in San Antonio de los Baños called El Credito. And um, he bought the company. He bought that, you know, that cigar company. And that was basically, you know, his first uh, cigar company. And it was, uh, you know, still he was in politics. I remember his brothers uh, used to run, you know, the company. He also gone into, you know, growing his own tobacco, you know, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, um, brokering his own tobacco to sell to the different factories in, in, uh, in Cuba. I mean, he was a go-getter, you know, he was, you know, he was always out there hustling and, um, you know, I learned a lot of, 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 you know, from him as far as, you know, I think one of the most important things that I learned from him was the attitude, you know, you got to have that positive attitude that, you know, things are going to happen and uh, they're going to happen for the, uh, for the best long-term. So, you know, this is how, how basically, you know, when he started uh, in Miami, he already had some experience. He had some of the relationships with the, uh, you know, the Olivas, uh, Andre Lopez, you know, who was one of the pioneers of, uh, of tobaccos here in Miami. Uh, he was like the only, at that time, he was probably the only uh, uh, warehouse that would bring in tobaccos from uh, Dominican, you know, Cameroon. Uh, there was not that many options, you know, Matafina from Brazil. So, that's when you know how he started the uh, you know the the factory on A Street and with and with one roller, one roller, <laughs> and you know little by little he started bringing in people. But you gotta remember this, you know, a lot of the you know I've, not a lot, everybody that made cigar at that time, all the rollers were Cubans and they were from, you know, they were from anywhere from their seventies to their eighties years old. So, it this was this was art. You know, I remember yeah. we used to have a, a, a pair, um, Enrique and Onelia Valdez. And these people were, you know, they make 50, 75 cigars a day. And I would look, I would, you know, stand in front of their, their, their um, table there and watch them make cigars. And it, it, was, it was like magic, you know. Uh, Enrique used to make the uh, Palma Mallorcas. And Onelia, I think, made, uh, what did she make? She made... Um, I think she made Soberanos. Uh, and they were beautiful, beautiful cigars. And then we had, you know, like three or four more uh, people like them. So I saw them, you know, I, I seen that, you know, that evolution in, in the manufacturing. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's those people that really set the, uh, the standard, I think, for, uh, for cigars being made today. Let me mm -hmm. tell you, during that time, uh, these people would not work with molds. It would work like they used to in, in, in Cuba. You know, most came into Cuba, I believe it was in the late 50s, maybe a little bit early 50s. Before that, 
everything was done by hand. And the mold was actually two small rubber bands where you would do the, the bunching, you put the rubber band, and that's what hold, would hold the, uh, the, uh, the bunch huh. together. Right. So think about that. And then the way they do that, they would make like, let's say 10, 15 cigars like that. Then they would come back, then would, they would roll it. But the thing about that, there was no ring gauge that you could say, okay, this is going to be a 48, this is going to be a 50. It all had to be, you know, in your hand. And and let me tell you, these people were masters because, you know, you you get that ring gauge and, you know, you patch the cigar and it was a 48, it was a 50, it was a 52, whatever. They so just that knew was, by the feel of the cigar. By the feel where, of the bunch. They knew. Wow. They knew. It wasn't right. like, let me count one, you know, let me count two leaves or let me count one leaf. Or let me count. No, no. It's right here in the hand. Even today, even today, you know, if, right. although we, you know, in our, in, in our company, we sleeper man. The bunch has to be made in the hand. You know, you can't depend on the liverman and say, okay, this is going to come out right. No, it doesn't happen mm -hmm. that way. So, you know, that's something that has always uh, stuck with me, the way that these people work. And we had some, you know, we had some people there that were, like I said, 70, 75, and still the pride and and the uh, respect that they had for, for their, uh, you know, for their craft. It was incredible. I remember, you know, if I wanted to talk to a cigar maker, uh, I have to be very careful because I had the uh, the experience one where I, I it was this guy there, Enrique, Enrique, Enrique Reyes. And we had, you know, we had a big fight. We had a big fight. So that guy in the afternoon, he packed his thing. He was getting ready to leave. And, and my father, you know, he, he didn't know what was happening. So, you know, he called Enrique and he said, uh, look, what happened? Enrique told no, your son came and he basically told me that, you know, what I was doing, you know, I was a little bit cocky at the time. What I was doing was not right. And I said to him, well, if you wanted a certain way, why don't you sit down and teach me how to do it? And, you know, that kind of, that pissed me off. I said, you know, I'm the owner and all this crap. Anyway, that afternoon, uh, Enrique decided to stay. And my father called me over and he said, uh, you know, you got to understand something, you know, put yourself in their place, eight hours, seven hours a day, try to make perfection. Something's going to go wrong. And what you got to understand is you got to respect these people because this is, you know, this is an art. This is not something that, you know, you can go to school to learn. You can, but unless you have that natural talent, unless you have that love for cigars in your heart, you know, you're never going to be a good cigar maker. And these are the people that are actually, you know, uh, making this thing happen, you know. So, you know, please, you know, treat them with respect and and learn how to, uh, you know, how, learn how to talk to them. And basically, you know, that's, you know, from that day on, I, I, I learned that, you know, cigar makers or, or anybody in general that, you know, works with you or, or, or work for you, you know, you got to treat them as, as, you know, as you want to be treated. It's as simple as that. And uh, I think we've, you know, a lot of the success that we've had is, is the fact that, you know, uh, people that work with us, we try to make them feel like they're, they're part of the family as much as possible. Needless to say. I so, think that, well, because as many people have said on this show, I think, I think Carlito said it last week when he was on, I, the people are what make this industry. Exactly. So that's, exactly. that's a, that's a, a, a profound point. 
exactly. This is that, you know, we're not, we're not, yeah, I'm sorry. No, so it, just in listening to you, it, it brought me back to, um, and especially talking about the rollers and bunch of, it brought me back to my, my grandma's cooking. Um, you couldn't get a recipe from my grandmother because there were no recipes. You know, everything was by feel, <laughs> you know, a handful of uh, this much. There was no tablespoon. It was by feel and touch. And, you know, that's what went in. And it, it just brought me back there listening to you. you fill know, the top no of the pot. Right, Phil. Bro, fill the top of the pot with basil. <laughs> you know, you know, they, you, know they, you know, they say cigar maker is a lot like wine. And, and maybe it is, you know, but I, I see it more as, you know, being a chef of a restaurant, okay? And, you know, you go to a fine restaurant, you have the chef. But at the end of the day, you know, the chef is not going to be there doing the work. He's going to have his crew doing the work. And this is what basically, you know, cigar makers are. You know, you give them the recipe, you give them the blend. And they're going to interpret that blend and make the cigar that you hope will always, you know, come out as consistent as possible and that people will enjoy. But, you know, they're the true artists. You know, I find that, you know, you know, my 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 vision of a blend, you know, my idea of a blend or whatever, you know, it's going to be um, uh, they're the ones that are going to interpret that. So, I mean, they can either make it or, or break it depending on how they, you know, on, on how they feel or how they're treated to a certain degree. Now, one very important thing that I believe about this is that, you know, needless to say, you know, the, they gotta love what they do, and that's key. You know, I think that's key because once you get a, a, a group of, of cigar makers or, or workers in general that really love their job and they feel good and they feel secure, then, you know, it's just a question of, of keeping that mentality and that attitude, and uh, it's, it's gonna be, you know, you're gonna have a successful brand. Yeah, absolutely right. That's some great. That's some great uh, advice there. I think for business you're in. Exactly. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ernesto Perez Carillo Jr. Um, the VPC Cigar Company. Um, we're going to take a short break right now, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how Ernesto almost didn't go into the cigar business. <laughs> he had another passion at the time. We're going to talk about it right after this. Keep it lit. Battle of the Bears. Oh, yeah. Macho Man Randy Savage coming to you live from the Drew Estate Experience Acid Studios. Oh, yeah. Look what I got here. I got the championship belt like I told you I was going to get, President Jack Tunney. What do you got to say? Oh, yeah. It was the Battle of the Bands. I went head-to-head in a cage match with the best of the best. Mr. Tiki Torch Man himself, Brian Glenn, went down. Dojo went down. Coop. Coop, ooh, yeah. Coop went down. Developing pallets. And the blind man himself tried to make a run for the macho man at the end, but it wasn't good enough, was it, blind man? Ooh, yeah. Macho Man wants to thank some people. Ooh, the fine folks at Drew Estate Cigars for always supporting the Macho Man. The people at Padron. Oh, yeah. John Huber. Crown Head Cigars. Thank you so much, brother. Alec Bradley. Ooh, I couldn't have done it without you. And 
And whew, Steve Saka. Steve Saka said the Macho Man couldn't win. What you think about this, Mr. Steve Saka? I told you, the cream always rises to the top. Who's going to take this belt from me? 2021 Battle of the Bands is coming up soon. Do you think you got what it takes to beat the Macho Man? You think you can take this belt from me? Well, it is on because I am going to come back and defend my title. Oh, yeah. So thank you to Abe DeBabna. Smoke in. We're going to see you again. 2021. Going to defend my title. Oh, yeah. Hola a todos, mi nombre es Elmer Suárez de La Flor de Copán en Honduras. My name is Ernesto Cranwinkel and I'm from La Romana, Dominican Republic. Hola, mi nombre es Diana, soy de Manizales, Colombia. Días, Freddy Molina desde Estelín, Nicaragua. Hola amigos, saludos a todos. María Santis, orgullosa de ser puertorriqueña. Cheers, I'm Oliver, I'm from London, England. I love H. Uman Añejo. My favorite H. Upman Dominican cigar is the H. Upman Banker. My favorite H. Upman cigar is the Herman's Batch. Favorite H. Upman is the H. Upman by A.J. Fernandez. Mi cigarro favorito is H. Upman Española. I highly recommend you try the H. Upman 175th anniversary, awarded number 10 cigar of 2019. One world together with H. Upman. Surgeon General Warning. Cigars are not a safe alternative to cigarettes. All right. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> I got to say, you got to give it to Kevin Sheehan from Cigar Prop. That dude, that could be the best Randy Macho Man impersonation I've seen. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, there... If there was an award given in this industry for that, he should definitely win something. That's he crazy. definitely commits, man. I'll tell you that. Doesn't play when it comes to that. <laughs> no. so, so if you're just joining us uh, our, to all our fans out there, uh, today we have a really esteemed guest, Ernesto Perez Carrillo Jr. of uh, EPC Cigars. Thank you for joining us on uh, this Saturday morning, Ernesto. Always an honor and a pleasure. Um, before we hit the break, we, you touched, we started touching base on your father acquiring the El Credito factory on 8th Street. And right. mm -hmm. at this time when he acquired the factory, how old were you? I was, um, that was back in 68. Uh, so I was what? Um, hmm. I'm so, well, they say. Teenager? I, I was about, what, 16, 17, I think. Okay. Maybe 18, 19, because I started working with him in 1970. And I was, um, well, I want to be 69 now. So, I mean, this is my 50th year in the industry. God bless. So I was, you, yeah, about 19, 18, 19 years old, yeah. Your passion at that time, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, is that you wanted to be a drummer. You were playing the drums. That's correct. I started, uh, you know, I started playing drums when I was in uh, high school. 
And then I, um, I got into it, I guess you could say professionally, at around the age of 19. Uh, I got married when I was, uh, you know, 19. And um, that was kind of what, you know, I wanted to, to do because I, I loved, you know, I loved jazz. I loved, uh, you know, I, I was just an, uh, obsessed with, you know, jazz and, and drums. And then, and then, you know, that's what I, I was hoping to do. Uh, the thing was that, you know, during that time, the, the cigar factory was really, you know, we had, I think at that time, maybe we started with one cigar. During that time, we maybe we built up to five, six cigar makers. So, I mean, it wasn't really something that could support a family. And I got married when, like I said, when I got, when I was 19, and uh, I really couldn't, you know, support, you know, my family, uh, you know, with the with what I was getting from the uh, the cigar company, so I started uh, playing drums. You know, I, I started doing you know like odd jobs, um, and the local clubs. You know, I would play uh, you know with some uh, you know some of the local bands. Uh, you know, with some of the artists that would come in, and uh, you know we would be like the backup band. <clears throat> but I always had this thing where I wanted to you know to be a, a, a jazz drummer. So in, in the 70s, I think it was 1975, 76, something like that, I decided to, uh, you know, to move to uh, New York City and give my go at, at becoming a, a famous jazz drummer. <laughs> uh, during that time, I had to kind of support myself. So I got a job working with Nat Sherman on Fifth Avenue. Wow. Oh, oh yeah. my God. That's so, that's so random. That's funny. Yeah. Fifth Avenue and was it 55th and what a cigar shop, you know, I remember I was in charge of the um, of pipes uh, Selling pipes and uh, What a beautiful shop, you know, it was oh, yeah. really really high-end. I remember on, on the uh, on the Basement they had this humidor that was closed up and it was all uh, basically pre-embargo Cuban cigars and there were, you know, a lot of boxes there. I don't know how many, but there were, you know, a lot of boxes there. So I worked there, and then at night, and during the weekends, I would go out, you know, during the uh, during the day, uh, during the night, the, the weeknights, I would go out and, and hang out in the different clubs, uh, you know, the Village Vanguard, the Blue Notes, you know, and just hang out there and, and, and see people and, and watch people play and that type of stuff. And then the weekends, I would go, and go to the different, um, you know, jobs. I mean, sometimes it was me and a piano player. And uh, remember one guy I used to uh, work with. We worked a couple of weekends, and uh, I think it was like twenty bucks a night, something like that. <laughs> and uh, one day, um, one of the jobs we went to, you know, the the owner of the club, uh, he never showed up. So I, you know, we never got paid or whatever. But you know, that's the kind of experience that that I went through at that at that period. But what happened was, you know, one of those nights I, I was uh, asked to sit in by a group, you know, I become a little bit friendly with the drummer. He says, why don't you sit in and, you know, and play with the group? And I started, I was playing and Stan Getz uh, walked into the club. And after I finished, okay, he, uh, he came up to me and says, you know, uh, where are you from? And he says, well, I'm from Cuba. And for some reason at that time, Cuban drummers and Cuban percussions were, you know, in demand. So he says, look, uh, why don't you come and, and audition? I'm looking for a, for a drummer. Why don't you come and audition for us? Now, I was what, 19, 20 years old? I don't remember. But anyway, uh, so I, I, you know, that 
weekend, I got my uh, my drums into my uh, my car. I had a uh, a Chevrolet station wagon, yeah. and I drove up to uh, his his home. I think it was in uh, up north, Teeberry, Fly, something like that. Teeberry. Up in up, yeah, up up in up New York. So we go into his you know his studio there, and there's him, the piano player, and the drummer. And I set up my drums and, you know, I'm ready to start playing. So they start and basically I froze. Wow. Oh, no. I froze, man, you know, and I just start, you know, you know, playing and what a terrible experience. And, you know, the guy stopped. He said, let's try it again. You know, relax, you know, relax. You know, we're just here to have fun. You know, don't worry. You know, again, man, you know, I tried again and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't play. You know, I couldn't hear the music. I couldn't hear anything. And let me tell you. I, I used to be pretty good, you know. I mean, I used to be because I really, you know, you know, I really became obsessed with playing drums, and it was like, you know, seven hours a day practicing and all that kind of stuff. And I remember those days, you know, drummers they used to come out and check each other out and here in Miami, and um, I was pretty good. at just put it that way. And and then, uh, you know, after that experience with with Stan Getz, you know, he basically told me, look, I think you have potentials. But you really need to stay, you know, in this city, and you need to really, um, you know, go out more and 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 learn more, and then let's see down, and maybe in three or four or five years, you know, we'll meet up again and, and we can do this again. But uh, doing that, that time, was pretty nice of him. Let's be honest. In that, in that, oh industry, man, let me tell you, you man, get one shot. What a gentleman! What a gentleman that guy was. And you know, I met a lot of people up there, and and they were all so nice, you know. Uh, Shaka Khan, you know, I met her once, you know, they were looking, looking for a drummer. But after that experience with, with uh, you know, with with uh, Stan Getz, I said, if I'm going to do this, I have to stay here and really, really learn the ropes, you know. New York is a complete different world than Miami. Oh, and yeah. uh, as far as, you know, music is concerned and everything in general. But then, you know, one day uh, in 1976, it's a funny story. Let me tell you something. I met in in nineteen around that same period. Uh, I heard about um, oh my God, uh, what's his, what's this guy's name? By his name, um, uh, I'm trying to think of this gentleman's name. It's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Jonathan Drew does a, a great imitation of him. Lou Rothman. Lou Rothman, yeah. He had a store. Oh, you were in thirty. You were in his hometown, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I listen to this because I've had a couple of experiences with Lou Rothman. You know, I love the guy. I mean, the guy's always been open to give me a break. Now listen to this. So I show up to Lou Rothman. I asked my father, said, you know, I'm gonna go visit this guy. Maybe we can open up some stores here in New York City. So I go and visit Lou Rothman. I never forget he had his store. He was sitting there by himself on top of the stool. So I started talking to him about, you know, La Gloria Cubana, which we were, you know, we had at that time, we were promoting at that time. He says, uh, you know, Ernesto, send me some samples. And I say, yeah, great, you know, we'll send you some samples. So, you know, I was happy. I leave, I call my father, say, look, dad, you know, send this guy some samples. He has a beautiful store, you know, we're going to do great here and all that type of stuff. So three or four days passed by. And I said, I'm going to go visit, you know, Lou Rothman again. And uh, I go back 
And I said, well, what did you think of the cigars? He said, you know, I never got the cigars. So I said, shit, you know, what, what could have happened? So anyway, I said, look, let me call him. Let me call my father and uh, let's see how, you know, if we can get those cigars out uh, to you. So I call my father and he says, uh, no, you know, I couldn't send them. And, you know, he made this excuse. <laughs> and the thing was, you know, um, couple of days later my, my mother calls me and she says uh unless you have to come home oh. and i say well why why do i have to come home he say she says basically you know your father's very sick um uh, and um, he's been diagnosed with you know als and you know we don't know how long he's going to be uh around and uh he's got this opportunity to sell the business and uh you know i think you should be here so, I mean, you know, when I heard that, I said, you know, screw this shit, you know. The next day, I got in the car. Uh, I was living with a family at that time, uh, you know, family, uh, and, you know, great, great the way they they, uh, they supported what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I came back to Miami. So, we had that meeting. Uh, it was a company called Royal Jamaica. Oh. And, uh, yeah, the Gold Brothers. They used to make really nice cigars. You know, Jamaican tobacco was really unique. Uh, First cigar I ever smoked. I'm yeah. premium. Yeah. Very unique cigars, let me tell you. And then, um, so, you know, we go to the meeting. And, uh, you know, during the meeting, I asked my father to step out. And, uh, you know, basically I asked him, you know, don't sell the, you know, don't sell the company. He says, well, Ernesto, you know, these people are offering me $125,000. That's a lot of money. You know, and when I when I'm not longer here, you know, I want you know at least your mother and yourself to have something to you know to live on. And I said to him, "Well, listen, don't sell it. You know, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna be, I wanna keep doing what you're doing. You know, and and it just you know there was a lot of memories. You know, my my family. You know, going into you know coming home from school and seeing or you know after dinner, you know, seeing my family, everybody there." together working on, on, on the uh, kitchen tables or wherever was available, you know, getting the tobacco ready for the next day, you know. Uh, my wife, Elena, you know, she started working, I think she started working with my father before I did. And, uh, you know, doing anything that needed to be done in that factory. So he said, okay, look, I want selling under one condition. And uh, that condition is that, uh, you know, you got to give up your drum. You gotta forget about this, you know. If you're gonna, if you want to really do this, you gotta put in your time. And I'm talking about 24 seven, 365 days a week, a year, like I do. And I said, okay, you know, that sounds great, Dad. But I can't live with sixty dollars a week. So can I at least work, and then have a night job? Uh, remember, when at that time I was making like you know, train drones. I was making anywhere from 180 to 200 dollars a week. So I mean, he said. All right, let's see what we can do. But anyway, you know, that's that's basically how it started, you know, from 1976 to 1980 when he passed away. It was just, uh, you know, that was my, um, you know, that was my uh, my thing, you know, just being in the factory all day, learning, and always, um, you know, learning whatever I could, not only from him, but from, you know, the workers there in, in the factory. And there's, there's a wealth of knowledge, you know, um, 
there was a wealth of knowledge in that factory. Not only there, but you know, in other in other factories at of, of the time. And then you know, in 1980, he passed away, and uh, basically, I took over the uh, the factory. And um, we all know what happened in in '92 when Cigar Aficionado came out. It just changed the whole you know the whole industry. And um, it's funny because uh, a couple of years before. Marvin Chank and you know he was playing with the idea of, of, of doing the the magazine and he visited a few of, of the you know the uh, the people in Miami and, and you know I was one of the ones that he visited and when he talked about you know what he wanted to do with the magazine you know and me knowing what the industry was like in that area in that era we're talking about you know the 80s you know the 80s the 90s I thought, you know, this was not going to, you know, this was not such a good idea. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, he did what he wanted to do, what he thought he needed to do. And um, I think the industry is, you know, it is today uh, what it is, you know, and, and a huge, huge part because of that, uh, you know, that vision of that man that uh, decided to, uh, you know, publish a magazine. So, and now, then, yeah. I remember, I remember. How impossible it was! I mean, forget about. It. I'm talking even mid '90s. Mm-hmm. Get your cigars, and when they were used to come in the the, the white bundles only, right? <laughs> they were wrapped in the ways before you were even putting your cigars in boxes. They were in, in in the white bundles, and I guess business had grown so much that you had made the jump to open up a factory in the DR. Right. That was that was at that time. Uh, we had about, I think we had about 25, 30 cigar makers in Miami, but the demand just kept growing. This was back in 19, you know, 95, um, when I decided to, you know, to move to a Dominican Republic. But, you know, then again, you know, this was something that was the, the idea. And I have to say, you mentioned, you know, Carlito that he was on last week. Um, I started going down to Dominican back in 1985, I think, and and my host uh, was was you know Carlitos uh, Carlos Fuente, the uh, senior, and you know I saw their 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 beginnings to a certain degree also in in Dominican Republic. So when I decided to make that move, you know I had like family there, which was with the the Fuentes, you know, and believe me, I think that. Uh, and I say this all the time because it's true, you know, without them, I don't know if I could have been open, if I could have opened my, my first factory because they let me all the malls, you know, the whatever I needed. Wow. You know, wow. They were there for me. So, I mean, that's that's a family that's, uh, you know, what can I say about them? Well, I don't and know. it's because of them that I'm there because, you know, they showed me, they, Mister, you know, I remember Carlitos and, and Carlos, you, you, know, it's, you know, get out of Miami, come down here because they went through that experience in Tampa, right. Nicaragua, and say this country is the greatest country and the world to make cigars and you know i think it's true i mean dominican republic is i mean everything about it it's just fantastic you know so i i decided to open up in in 96 uh we started with uh i think it was like maybe eight pairs maybe you know 10 pairs but i came with a mentality that I wanted to duplicate what I was doing in Miami. 
And the orders just kept growing and just kept growing and just kept growing. And, you know, I was there already like six months. And, and the most we could make was like, I don't know, a thousand, two thousand cigars a day. Mm. <clears throat> and my wife here is in Miami and, it, you know, she's going crazy. I said, you know, I mean, you move down there, you got to do something, you know, because, I mean, a thousand cigars, five thousand cigars a week, so it's just it's not helping. It's not doing anything. And in Miami, she was working here basically from six to ten a.m. Uh, from six a.m. to ten o'clock at night, you know, constantly because the demand was that big, and we still couldn't keep up. So I remember, in you know, after about four or five months, uh, another you know gentleman that I admire and love so much, uh, uh, Julio Fajardo. He came into the factory and he saw that I had, you know, like maybe like 10 pairs. He said, you know, Ernesto, you gotta, you gotta, have you ever heard of, of that saying says, uh, that says, uh, when in Rome, do like the Romans do? <laughs> and I say, yeah. Well, what does that mean? He says, get your head into this country, man. This is not Miami. This is not the Cuban cigar maker. These are great cigar makers doing what they do, but they gotta do it their own way. And that's basically, you know, I took that advice to heart. And needless to say, made the changes that needed to be made to accommodate the the uh, Dominican cigar makers. And we went from, I think, from that period on. At one time, we had over was it 280 employees, out of which you know half were basically you know cigar makers. So I mean, it was just a a, a, a again you know it was just a, a you know a, a change of attitude and, and understanding what the uh you know what the country was about and uh i think that's when we really started to you know get our name out there with the uh the gloria cubana the cvr and uh you remember the boom made you know cvr was a game changer it was a game changer for us cvr was a game changer for the industry no thank you i i mean honestly i i mean i look i mean i'm you've been in the industry a few decades longer than me, but there was no line that specialized in being a 50 plus ring gauge line, you know, where they were all like, I mean, the the sevens are, are, are what, 56 ring gauge? The, the setup was a uh, 58. 58, yeah. I mean, that was big. It was yeah. the first time these big cigars. I remember seeing them. Boxes were nice, these little square boxes. And I remember seeing them saying, you know, I mean, this is a big jump because for many years, for most of my years at that point, I've been buying cigars in white bundles. Then they went to nice little white dress boxes, you know, the regular yeah. lot. That, that was yeah. a great step up. But now we got these dark lacquered boxes with yeah. cigars. And I'm saying, who's going to buy this? I mean, <laughs> just, just, it was, they were, they, I can't remember anything at the time that, that, that emulated this, this model of, of lines of being all big ring cigars. And, and, you know, I'm curious because I don't think I've ever asked you in all these years, what inspired that, Ernesto? Because really, I can't remember anything being seen at that time where there was a line that went from 52 to 58 and that's it. There wasn't your standard, you know, 48 or 50 ring gauge cigar. I mean, it, it was just meant to be a bigger ring gauge brand. What what inspired that at that time? Well, that, that, was, that was basically... Uh, we came out with that cigar, I believe it was 1997. I want to say 97, 98. And what happens, you know, La Gloria Cubana, 
<clears throat> the white box was doing, you know, fantastic. At that time, I think our biggest ring gauge was a 54, the Charlemagne. We had the 52, the 50. But like you said, big ring gauge cigars weren't, you know, weren't vogue at that time. And I remember 19, I want to say 97, um, probably about four or five months before the, the, the IPCPR or the RTDA at that time. My wife comes to me, she says, you know, Nessa, the, the business is, is slowing down. You don't see the demand that, uh, you know, that we had back a year ago. And, you know, I really wasn't, no, I wasn't Dominican, you know, we were shipping. And it just came to me. I said, well, you know, we got this bowls, 52 and 54 ring gauge. Why don't I make a, uh, you know, like a Robusto and maybe like a half, a, a double Corona, whatever, and this green gauges and, and see how it, you know, how it comes out. And at that time, you know, I was debating, you know, what to call the cigar and what to, to, how to dress it up. Um, I mean, how to package it, I should say. Mm. So I started, you know, thinking about, you know, this is like a Robusto, but like a bigger Robusto size. You know, why don't I make a line of big Robustos? And that's where the, the CVR comes from, you know, super Robusto, super Robusto, or, you know, that was the, the concept behind it. So, I, I go down to, uh, at that time, there's, there, there still is Picas, or there was, I should say. There's, the box, there the box company. The box company. Picas, the box and, company. Yeah, and, and I'm listening there with uh, Bob and, and, and Peter, and I come up with a concept. You know, what can we do different? Now, we had maybe a month to the IPCPR to introduce this. I have, we had already worked on, on the bands, you know, this was like the, the thing that I kept procrastinating on as far as the box, because I didn't know, you know, what concept that I wanted to use. So I'm there and I'm looking at all the different things and I see a cabinet box and that's basically how the idea of the, uh, you know, the CVR came about, you know, from being in that, in that, uh, in their office and looking at the different boxes. And, um, so I said, why don't we make this box and we'll add some colors. And, you know, they came up with the, the, uh, the bronzing on the, on the label and, you know, all that type of stuff. And then 10 days before the, the, before the show, you know, we got the samples. I got the sample boxes. We got the cigars. And I basically, at that time, you could bring cigars down to Miami without any problems. And, um, you know, and we introduced them at the, uh, at the RTDA. I believe it was in Las Vegas, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, you know, from that first moment, it was huge. Incredible. You know, we had the natural and the Maduro in two sizes. Yep, four and five. And Yeah, that's it, four and five. And it was huge. Let me tell you, the response was really incredible. And, again, it got us back onto the, um, you know, into the, um, into the line there, you know. So it was, um, it was just something that it, it just happened. You know, sometimes you, you plan for things for – forever and nothing happens and this just thing just happened you know i guess out of the necessity of of uh, coming out with something that uh was innovative and it was different from the times because remember abe at that time a 52 was usually eight inches and a 54 was usually seven inches right you know this were like five maybe and five and a half inches if i'm not mistaken five or six inches or something like that well 
So that brought in, you know, a whole new perspective to the uh, to the smoking. You know, something that he if he liked the big ring gauge cigars, he could, you know, smoke one and not have to, you know, smoke a seven or an eight inch cigar. So and, and it, honestly, it paved the way for the future for the you know the six by sixty, which is a yeah. you know mark, you know dominant well, in the market. Well, the six by sixty also came about when once we got bought out by uh, by Swedish Match. Uh, this was also that was it was in my apartment with Mike Giannini, and he was at that time he was the like the marketing director or something, and there were two other gentlemen with us, and we were say and we were talking about coming out with a, uh, a line extension. Now the original idea was to come out with a forty-eight by five, I think it was forty-eight by four and a half, and you know we're there, you know I made the samples and all that, and. The more we talked about it, the more I started thinking about the concept. You know, robusto, semi robusto. We have a fifty-four, and and I just I, I just said to them, I said, look, you know, I think the size we we need to come out with is is a bigger size. And you know, uh, Michael said, well, you know, what do you think, or you know, what what do you want to do? And I said, let's do a six by sixty. Now, needless to say, this thing just came up to me because we had made you know six by sixties. Even when we started in Miami, we used to make a seventy. By seven in a sixty, I think it was a sixty-four, sixty-five by six for you know private labels and that type of stuff. And they say, yeah, let's go for it. So we did the six by sixty, and it again that was huge. You know that was like uh, incredible the way that you know people responded to that cigar. And then after that, we came out with a fifty-eight by seventy, uh, fifty-eight by seven. I'm sorry, and you know that was also. I mean that CVR at, at one point. I would have to say, you know, it was, you know, probably as big as the the regular line with uh, eight sizes. Yeah, no, it was definitely a game changer in the industry. It was a game changer. Yeah. Now you talk you talked about selling the Swedish match, so mm -hmm. I'm curious as to your psychology at that moment because you know your dad who was poised with the same choice. You know, you went there and you talked him out of selling. What was your reason to sell at that time? Because you weren't ready. You weren't ready to retire. You know what I mean? I wasn't. <laughs> obviously, obviously, you're not. You weren't. Uh, so you no. were ready to retire. <laughs> you know what? What? What made you decide to sell the company? You know, your father, the company your father basically started. And you grew into a a national, internationally known company. What made you decide to sell it then? Well, I I think that you know the fact that. Um, I was very limited in a, in a lot of things. I mean, there were a few factors, you know. You know, sometimes it's not, you know, about the money. It, sometimes it's about, you know, knowing your limitations. And I knew that, you know, I had my strength, uh, but I had my weakness. Now, what were my weakness? My weakness were, you know, the, the financials, the sales, uh, you know, organization, the marketing, all that type of stuff. And also, I think one very important thing that that play into it was the fact that you know my daughter Lee said she already had started working in uh, New York City as a lawyer and my son went off to uh, to study finance and uh, you know seeing that you know they were not really going to get into the the business I said to myself you know what I think it's a good idea to you know to you know merge with these people because you know they're they're the way they saw the business, they were, you know, basically at that time, mostly into the machine and the uh, snuff and that type of stuff. And they were willing to give me free range to run the business basically as I saw fit. 
And I say, you know, it's a great opportunity um, to to really grow the brand more because I, excuse me, I knew that on my own, it was going to be very hard to keep growing that brand. I mean, there were a lot of large cigar companies that were coming into play and, you know, their, their marketing, their finance, their, you know, the distribution was a lot, you know, was way beyond anything that I could, you know, uh, come close to. So looking so back, one, on, you know, that, looking back yeah. on it, do you think yeah. maybe they have prematurely sold? And looking back at it now. Well, look at it. <laughs> uh, I, maybe, but, you know, I think uh, things happen for a reason. And, you know. I don't look back now. You know, maybe if I if I would have sold now, maybe you know, who knows? But I'm glad I sold at that time because you know it definitely, uh, you know, it's it's a question of finally having gone something that, that people don't understand. You know, we love this business. You know, you want to keep this business forever, and you know, but at the end of the day, it's a business. And there's you know one thing about that uh, that you know we all have to understand. You know, you're in business to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only to make money for yourself, but for those that, you know, helped you and work with you and all that type of stuff. But there's a time where you have to know also, you know, is now is, is it, you know, is it, is this the right model for me to keep, you know, doing, is it time to, you know, sell, especially if the opportunity shows up. So, I mean, there was a lot of things that came into play, but I think the, the biggest thing was the fact that, you know, my kids, you know, I knew their, their life was going to be set. And, I, and my idea was, you know, I'm going to sell the business. I'm going to work for another three or five years and then, you know, see what I do. <laughs> and uh, it, turned out, <laughs> it turned out that I worked with General about, um, what was it, nine years, ten years? Ten, ten years. Ten years. That's right. And then I said to, and then I said, uh, you know, like two years before I decided to, you know, to, to give my notice, um, I had a two-year non-compete. So they asked me to stay the, the extra two years, you know, and work with them and, you know, do what I had to do. They said, look, we know you're going to open your business, you know, do what you have to do. Just, you know, keep running the factory, keep doing what, you know, what you do. And so, I mean, with that, they were extremely generous with me. And, um, you know, so in 2009, um, while we were still negotiating, because we were still negotiating with, with General Cigar to see if I would stay with them you know, uh, and keep working with them. And I remember in one of the meetings, we went up with my, uh, I went up with Ernie and Lisette to the, uh, to one of the meetings. And we were talking and uh, i never forget, you know, it was, uh, Dan Carr was there, uh, the CEO, uh, Rich Flaherty, and us three, and we were talking about, you know, if I stay, you know, how are we going to work this out? You know, uh, needless to say, there were a lot of things that needed to be talked about. And uh, at one point, you know, my, my uh, we said, uh, Ernie and myself, we, we, we're out, you know, we, we go back to the hotel and we start talking. And uh, they say to me, it, it's, you know, I, when, I, when I think about this, it's, it's, it's incredible. They say, well, you know, why don't we, why don't we do our own brand? And, and, and believe me, no, believe me, I was already thinking about opening the factory. That was one of the, you know, the one things that I told my wanted to do. But my idea was to do private labels. Okay, I was going to do private labels, 
you know, for uh, Rocky, for, you know, Alan Rubin, for I anybody. Who, you wanted to make cigars. Yeah, no, I pulled another no, brand. Like I said, you know, I'll start all over again with the brand. Be, I don't want to build a brand because I know what that's like, and I don't. I just don't, you know, I don't need that. You know, I just want to have fun making cigars for all these people. And that's when they came to me and said, you know, why don't we make our own brand? <clears throat> I said, look, you have, you know, you, you have your great job, you know, Ernie at that time was working for uh, uh, KKR. Lisette had her own business. You know, she had her own law uh, thing going on. I said, you know, why, why would you guys, you know, want to leave that to do this? And uh, they said, well, because you know. You guys hear me? Yeah. 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 You guys hear me now? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we can hear you. His pods might be dying. Uh, his pod might. If you put the volume up on your on your computer, we'll hear you. Just put the volume up. Is we'll hear. You. We don't want to miss this. Yeah, it's, I, mean, I know. I'm. I'm so engaged right? right now. I. I can't yes, hear you. We can hear you. Uh, so so you said so you said why do you want to do this? You both have your jobs. I mean, do they just tell you it's in our blood? Like we. This is this is what this is what we do. This is what our family does. I don't think you can hear us. Can you hear me? We yes. can hear you. Yes. Okay. Oh, I, yeah, like, think can, I can't I hear can, you, but I keep talking. Take, keep talking. Take him like out. out like... Take take him out and let the computer, the computer speaker. Put the volume up on your computer. Turn the volume up. On your... Yeah, we hear yes. you. Can you hear us? Can you hear us? Anyway, so <laughs> keep going. Go ahead. So anyway, awesome. what happened was they say, why don't we build, why don't we do our own brand? And, um, you know, I said, you know, you guys have, you know, you have your own job. You know, what, what do you want to get involved in this? You know I mean? Let's think about it. This is not something that's going to make you guys rich. You're going to live. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you guys are making great money. So why, you know, what do you want to do this? They say, well, you know, we want to be part of this project. So, you know, we start talking about it. The next day we meet up again. I said to them, I said to the people down in, uh, in uh, Richmond, I said, you know, I decided I'm going to do this thing on my own. And, you know, thank you. But, you know, we're just going to keep doing what, you know, I'm just going to do what my plan was, which was to make, you know, have my own factory. So we go and um, the first, the first thing, you know, when we come back to Miami, we start planning. Uh, my son was going to move. He was living in New York. He was going to move back to Miami. And, um, you know, so we said, um, let's start and, and have, a, you know, if we're going to have our own brand. Uh, the name of the, of the factory is called Tabacarela La Alianza. So why don't we call the brand that? Right there, that was the first. I said, no, no, no. We're not going to call it Tabacarela La Alianza. We're going to call it EP Carrillo. All right. So that's how you know the came the, the 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 I guess the company came about, and um, we started in what was it 2009. I had been already uh, looking into the factory for the past I guess you know year and a half year. So in 2009 we went you know was when we started uh, operations in, in Dominican Republic. So I mean, and, and when I look back and and you see that. You know all that that journey of of you know how we started. You know how the family was always um, how do you say um, working. You know to make things happen. You know because 
you know, one thing is when 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 I left uh, La Gloria, when I saw La Gloria, and left the company, you know, uh, I was La Gloria Cubana. You know, everything was about me, and and quite frankly, you know, when you open up a new business, and you're not longer heading that 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 company, or you know, or, or you're not La Gloria Cubana. It's a little bit more difficult to get your cigars into places, and I know that um, you know a lot of a lot of people support us from the beginning. You know, Abe, you know, you were one of those guys. You know, everybody just supported us because they had they had a lot of faith in what and uh, what we were going to do. And uh, and I remember you know, calling what our, you at the what press our cigars were going to do. I remember calling you on the press release. I don't know if you remember that. The second the press release hit, and you were opening. Oh, you can't hear me, can he? No, I guess not. Paul, why don't you contact him, see if you can get him to turn his speaker on, and I'm, I'll I just will. I, I'm, I was hey, trying to I, get Kuf I've on. Lost, so I've can... lost the uh, – I've lost – I can't hear you. Paul, give him a call, and Alex, and I'll just do the – I don't know what's happening. Um, I will hang call on. you. Hang on. Hang on, Ernesto. All right. I'm going to uh, jump on uh, this week's Cigar Insane Asylum and get it out of the way while Paul tries to get Ernesto back on. I had a couple of great questions now, which I'm sure I'm, I'm going to I'm just forget. glad we got through the story. I was devastated for a minute. It was like hey, the movie cutting off in the last half hour. <laughs> I got to commend him. I got to commend him for being on point and just keep talking just, through, yeah. you know, not even being able to hear what we have to say. So kudos on him. So this is actually a funny story. Uh, I didn't I didn't see this insane asylum until about Thursday night when we had our meeting. But uh, this is an interesting story because it ends up, I know this person, right? So let's yeah, read it. Yeah. To achieve physical perfection for their dogs, some pet owners rely on what Lisa Lippman, a New York veterinarian, refers to as tricks of the trade. In other words, cosmetic surgery performed on your pet. We've all seen examples of ear cropping and tail docking. However, some pet owners wish to conceal the fact that their male pets have been neutered. Yep. I've seen people put in fake testicles, says Lipman. Greg Miller, the co-inventor of the prosthetic canine testicle known as the nudicle. Um, he claims to have sold more than half a million pairs. Thank God they're buying them in pairs, at least. Um <laughs> Since he filed for the patent in 1995, he claimed um, his motivation was to alleviate the discomfort <laughs> of em emasculated dog owners who would otherwise suffer comments by strangers who would misidentify the gender of their pet. Yep. According to Miller, Kim Kardashian's boxer, Rocky, is among the nudicled elite. Uh, from what I understand, too, she... Uh, Poor uh, Rocky got the lowest end model, as if there would be different model levels of nudicles. Uh, uh, right. Right, of fake testicles. This is a true story, people. Um, so to all the 500,000 dog owners who have had fake testicles surgically implanted on your dogs, you qualify for this week's Cigar Insane Asylum. So, true story. This you know the guy. Right. Amazingly. This is before there was FaceTime and Skype, and you know, there, there's, there was no seeing people you interacted with. Till today, I couldn't say what Greg Miller looks like. But I remember dealing via email with this, this gentleman who would place orders from us, 
And his his email address was nudicles.com. And I'm like, what is nudicles? And he goes on to tell me. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And he actually sends me this package. It's got a keychain with a nudicle testicle on it, you know, <laughs> and some other koozies and stuff like that. The guy was a customer of ours. I haven't talked to this guy in 10 years, at least. We tried to get him to do a little phone in. But this guy right. doesn't have a lap, doesn't have a laptop or, or or a cell phone, which I don't comprehend. Right? He's got in the hills of Montana somewhere. I don't know. But we right. wanted to get him on. We couldn't get him on. But as I'm reading the story for the first time at our meeting Thursday night, and I, and I see this, and they're talking about test, dog testicles, you know, being replaced. I'm like, dude, I knew a guy who did this. It was it was called Nudicles, and they keep doing this guy. Same guy. So, true story. That's this week's Cigar Insane Asylum. Hey, we are we are back with Ernesto Carez, uh, Perez Carrillo. He's all set. He can hear us. We can hear him. Good. We're nice. glad to have you back, Ernesto. That was a hell of a story. And I, and I was telling you, which you didn't, I, I don't know if you'll actually remember this or not, but the second the press release came out, that yeah. you are opening a factory. I called you. I know. And you're like, Abe, we're not even ready to open accounts yet. <laughs> we haven't done <laughs> nothing yet. Yeah. Literally, I, yeah. Call, like, I I don't care. I want to you know, make sure we get opened up. And it was like, it was literally months, months before, maybe months even a before. year. Yeah. Before he was ready, to, they were really selling product. But yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to make sure for that, for me, especially because, La Gloria Cubana was that brand, like kind of when I got in the industry. So I was part of its growth. I grew with the company, seeing it. And Ernesto had done events with me in the business. And, you know, um, I just wanted to be part of it from the moment I heard he was making a company. Now, what I wanted to ask you was, so look, you, without a doubt, live the American dream, right? Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. Couldn't live, couldn't afford, were worried how you're going to survive, provide for your family, struggling musician in New York, and you build this company that a major conglomerate buys from you, right? The American dream. And then in 19, was it, 1990? 2009. 2009, 2009. yeah. In 2009, you say to yourself, I'm going to try this again. I mean, was there, because look, I mean, you, there's got to be a part of you that says, do I maybe decimate this legend, you know, this history and legend and this reputation I've built? I mean, because lightning strike twice, you know, um, because, you know, let's face it, people remember the last thing you did. If EPC ended up being a terrible failure and never made it, you know, that's kind of what a lot of people would have remembered. I mean, was any of that going through your head at this moment? That's that's a, a very good question. And, you know, I think that, I, I think that, you know, it, you know, it was, it was not only me. I think that, you know, my kids, to a certain degree, they wouldn't let me fail. Uh, because, you know, as much respect as they... Uh, you know, have for me and I have for them, you know, my wife, my family. I think at the end of the day, you know that when you have that support, there's no way that you're going to fail. And, you know, needless to say, we've gone through a lot of, you know, even as a, as a, you know, family company, a small family company, 
We've gone through, you know, a lot of things that other companies go through. Uh, a lot of families go through. But at times, you know, at times I'll say to myself, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, what am I doing this? You know, I, you know, I should just forget about this shit, you know, and do something else. <laughs> and just be and not do shit. And that lasted for about, you know, 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes, I said, what, 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 what the hell is this? That's not, that's not you talking, right? That's somebody, you know, that does... And, you know, it's just that, you know, we, 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 you know, as a family, we love this so much. Uh, you know, how do you give, you know, how do you say, you know, we don't, we don't want to do this. It's just something that I just don't. And, and, you know, a couple of years ago, I told my, my, my family, say, you know, at 75, I want to retire. No, first it was 70. And then uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know what, at 75, I'm going to retire. Right. You know, I mean, how do I retire from something that I enjoy and, and love doing so much, you know? And um, right. so I don't think that's ever that's ever going to come here. I'm just, you know, we, we're just finding, you know, we're just trying to find like uh, like everybody else, every other uh, cigar company or company in general, you know, we're just trying to find our niche, which I think, you know, we've, we've, we're kind of there with the uh, Perez Carrillo series, you know, with the different cigars we're making in that series. So I think... Um, you know, the future definitely looks uh, uh, very, very bright for, for us, you know. Uh, and saying that, I think it looks very bright for the industry as a whole. So, and, and we've proven it now with this thing going on. Yeah. You know, uh, we have uh, for our Scoop with Coop segment, we have uh, Will Cooper in here. We want to bring him on. Ernesto, uh, uh, Coop provides us with the, uh, the real news that's out there. Okay. So I want to uh, I want to bring Coop on to the stream here. There he is, hey, William Coop. Cooper. Hey guys, Coop. Hey, hey everyone. Hey Ernesto. How you doing, Will? Good to see you. Uh, doing good. Doing good. Great, great, my what you, friend. What are you smoking there, Coop? I'm smoking. I pulled this out of the humidor. Uh, this is a uh, EP Carrillo Edition Limitada 2013. Wow, so this got a serious <laughs> age on it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and I'm enjoying it. It's really good. That's so, so Coop, what do we what do we have in the news today? Hold on. Before Coop gets in there, I just want to say, Coop, listen, I I didn't know uh, what that you guys were doing. Going to do a show together uh, last night on Dojo. I just happened to hop on. Um, I, I never even knew you guys did that show annually. I thought it was a great concept. Your buy sell hold show. If anybody out there is uh watching or listening or hearing this now go check it out it was the podcast last night uh, at cigar dojo but coop was a panelist kevin shahan from cigar crop emmett malone and eric and his son jordan and i just accidentally hopped on and i don't know if you you knew in advance i don't know if they told you coop who was gonna you who you guys were gonna look at for your buy sell hold um show but um, I ended up catching an accident, and I just want to thank you and every other guy that was on last night. I was really moved and touched, and it kind of was a, a great way for me to start my weekend hearing um, the praise from all you guys recognizing the work that we do here at Smoke In. So I just wanted to give you props and thank you for that personally. Oh, you're welcome. First of all, I didn't know, and what was even more of a surprise was I didn't know that there were going to be retailers in there as some of the options he, eric's done this i did this once before with eric eric's done it a lot and he and he didn't put had retailers in there before and so that one kind of we were all like doing that on the fly there was uh -oh. no 
prep we can do because we didn't know who he was going to uh, put up there. Um, so, Abe, like I said, um, you know, I think everything we said is all true. Yeah, you um, don't got to repeat yourself. I just yeah, wanted to thank you, brother. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah, I, no. I was, I was, I was moved by it because honestly, I, you know, I said it before. The, the greatest praise is when people and peers in your industry recognize and 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 acknowledge your work and your effort. And to to do that, it moved me. So I just wanted to thank you. And uh, go ahead, man. Hit your segment. Talk about the news. No problem. I'll, it was a light week of news. Bring us something uh, happened last week that I think is important. Uh, we did. We did put it on the webpage, but Pearl Sabor 2021 has been canceled. So that's wow. the Nicaraguan Cigar Festival. Um, it's been canceled due to COVID. And um, they're going to do a few, like, virtual factory visits, it sounds like, to make up for it. But it's, it's unfortunate because it's the second time in three years that Pearl Sabor is being canceled. And, you know, that was that's a growing show in Nicaragua, festival in Nicaragua. And... Um, you know, it's a shame that, that they're gonna, they've lost a little momentum because of this. So, what, what was the date it was supposed to be, Coop? It was in January. They had to make a call. See, you know, and, and people were, people were you know, we debated about the Great Smoke because that's February. And like, oh, it's yeah. far away, but it really is not that far away. And, you know, we just didn't want to be that first multi-vendor event that would drag people from all over the world and congregate in one place. So to see that they were in January, events are still getting canceled kind of makes me a little bit more comfortable about my decision. Yeah, I mean, big question is going to be what happens to Pro Guard. They haven't announced anything yet. That's February usually. So, um, you know, like I said, the way the world is, it wouldn't surprise me if that that is canceled or postponed. Yeah. So that what else you got? Um, Alec Bradley has got a, a new release uh, under their Project 40 line. Um, they had a lot of success with Project 40 last year. They were working with a different factory for some. It's Hastings Flavors Factory. And um, Project 40 did very well for them. Um, so now they followed up with a Maduro version of that cigar. Um, it features a San Andreas wrapper, Brazilian butter, Nicaraguan fillers. It's available in three sizes. Um, and that should be hitting the stores later this year. Um, and um, I'm kind of excited about that. Project 40 was one of the surprises for me last year as far as smoke, though. Is it, is it me or is anybody else getting bad audio from Coop? Yeah, yeah I think, bit. Coop, your, your internet connection might be a little choppy. Okay. Time to upgrade that Wi-Fi. No, yeah, I don't know. This guy does eight thousand. This guy does eight thousand podcasts a week from his. <laughs> right, he's got, yeah, he's got anything. He's got Wi-Fi. You should have a yeah, dedicated T one at your house. No, it's wired in too. I don't know. We've had this. I had this problem with Dojo last night too. Yeah, I heard it a little bit last night too. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you, Coop. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So yeah, that's uh, that should be hitting the shelves of Project Forty um, later this year. You know, it's funny because as a retailer, I'll tell you, there, you know, there's certain times where somebody will show me a brand and bring me, and Project 40 was one of those. I saw it, saw the packaging, saw the look, saw the price point, and I literally told my staff, this one here is going to be a winner, which it has. Project 40 has been a great mover and been appreciated by a lot of connoisseurs, um, and, and, and it is, is moves very well off the shelf. What's interesting, and maybe even Ernesto could chime in here, what's interesting is, this is a formula that I've seen epically succeed and epically fail throughout the history of our cigar industry, where you have this winning cigar and you just release it in a Maduro version. You know, 
it's it's worked phenomenally well historically, and it's just has failed with certain brands historically. No rhyme, no reason. I can't tell you why, but I'm very curious to see how Project 40 Maduro works. Yeah, and sometimes I've noticed, and this is just an observation that I've seen, is the first one, like you said, tends to do, whether it's the Maduro or the Natural comes out, the first one tends to do better. And sometimes I've seen when they both come out, there's one school sort of it can compete with each other, but on the other part, it can kind of create some excitement. So, Historically, I've seen it succeed very well. When Ashton came out with their Maduro, it was like one of the, that was like we got boxes; they were gone. You couldn't even order Ashton Maduro early in the day, right? Like it would show up. Yeah, you know, they say, "Hey, we just, we got boxes. We're sending you ten boxes." And they'd be gone like in the first thirty minutes. They hit the table. So I've seen it work, but I've seen it where just the Maduro version just dies. So I, I don't know why. I can't tell you what the reasoning is because I, I've never thought it was because the quality of the cigar, right? I never. I never had one and tried a Maduro version. It's like, oh, this is awful. It's just, it's just weird. You yeah. Know, let, me, let, me, let me just say something in there now. I think now, basically, all Maduros, you know, or most all Maduros, uh, have a very good chance of, of success because, you know, Maduro rappers, whether it's Broadleaf, um, you know, Mexican or Arapiraco, whatever, it's very hard to come by. So I think, you know, now, it, they're, they're going to be successful. Uh, but I think one thing that I've learned, one thing that I've learned and uh, the different you know lines that we make, it's very difficult, and I agree with you, it's very difficult to come out with a natural and a Maduro that both are going to be successful. Uh, that, ha- ha- that has happened in our case with the... Um, with your early lines, your Wavell and your Charlemagne. I mean, the Maduros yeah. were great. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, those, those were, you know, hey, those were different days, you know. Nowadays, unfortunately, True. you know, at that time, um, I mean, the cost of making a Maduro wrapper, and, and, and quite frankly, the wrapper alone is anywhere from, you know, I would say probably about 70 to a dollar just for the wrapper because it's gone that expensive, uh, oh, especially really? the broad Yeah, so... Uh, you know, for nowadays, if you come out with a natural and Maduro wrapper, you know, you definitely have to charge more for the Maduro because that's what it is. You know, it's more expensive. And Which was only, unheard of back then, right? Unheard of. Listen, when I started back buying... Back then it was unheard of. No. When I started buying Broadleaf back in 1980, it was, uh, what was it, $1.85, two, $2.25 a pound. You know? I mean, think about that. For a pound of broadleaf, and nowadays, you know, I, I don't even want to say what it costs because it's ridiculous. But you know, that's what it is. So, I think they'll have, you know, I think uh, there's success because of the fact that you know, there's there's a there's not that much maduros out, but it's hard to make them both work. And we find that, you know, I I found that with you know a couple of the lines that we do, where we have it in natural and maduro, and either one or the other one will sell better. And again, it's because the the people now, the, the the new customers that we have, you know, they 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 don't they don't want to be. I don't think they want to be confused and trying to say, well, this is a natural, this is a Maduro, you know, what's you know why, you know, uh, and what we've done, if you see, you know, we don't have an Encore Maduro, we don't have a right. uh, a Historia Natural, uh, we don't have a Pledge Natural, so. When we come out with something, that's what it is. That's you know, and that's what it's going to stick with. You know, we don't want. We may do line extensions, but I don't think we will ever say, okay, now we're going to have a natural, 
um, or, or or a Maduro New Wave Connecticut. You know why? You know, it's it's funny because logically that makes sense. I'm, Coop, we're gonna get back to you. We didn't forget you were on. It just oh, go ahead. Yeah, good. Sorry, to, uh... It's just interesting stuff because you know the rapper is a major element of the cigar. So it's funny. I don't know if it's a marketing thing. I don't know if it's an old school thing that just transcended time, but you're kind of right. If you're changing the wrapper, it's a, it's a different cigar. It's a different cigar. Why, why well, call it the same cigar, you know? And it's, <laughs> you know, I think there's old traditional stuff, like, like, like pricing stuff the same. Like, you know, in the old days, they didn't care if they had three wrappers of a line. They didn't care what the cost was. They just figured out the overall average and said, we're going to price it this stick where now it's, people become business people who say, well, no, that wrapper costs us X a pound, this a pound, and people will now price things maybe differently. But I think well, there's you some... Have you have to, but they didn't do that back in the day. So I, I agree with you. I think if we change the wrapper on something, it's essentially a different cigar. You're changing one of the main, major components of what makes that cigar that cigar. So, I mean, I'm sure there's branding and marketing strategies that will tell you otherwise, but I, I kind of agree with you. So sorry, and, Cooper. And, and, and oh, again, that has, yeah, that, that has to do, you know, that has to do a lot with, with the brand, um, the way it's presented. For instance, you have um, the Padron 1964, which comes in natural Maduro, you know, and those are successful. Um, you know, you have some other brands out there that, you know, have natural Maduro and they're very successful. But I think, I don't think that's the norm in general. You know, at least that's my experience. I don't know. Maybe right. I'm maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. All right, Coop. What else is going on? Um, another thing that just started to hit stores. Uh, Foundation Cigar Companies added a couple of uh, Perfectos to their Tabernacle line, uh, coming out of AJ Fernandez, and they're called David and Goliath. So one is a five by fifty-four Perfecto called David, and the other is five by fifty-eight uh, Perfecto. Five by 58 the April called Goliath. Um, so that features the that's uh, Dick Malolo's broadly friend, uh, featuring a broadly rapper, San Andreas Mexican binder, and Phyllis Nicaraguan Honduras. And those be hitting the shelves as we speak right now. So that's I wonder if he Garofalo to find out if he could use that phrase. <laughs> oh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, that was the name of his book, you know. So, I mean, David I, and Goliath, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it. A great book, by the way. If anybody has it, it really read it. was a good book. Yeah, yeah, it was a good book. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of funny. Industry's funny that way. They're like, oh, I came up with that name, but it's it'll, it will be. It, it, Nick makes great stuff. I can't wait to see it and try it. Yep. Yep. So, like I said, it was a light week in news this week. The last thing I'll just mention is uh, HVC, which is an up and coming company. Uh, they have been releasing a cigar for Black Friday uh, every year. Um, to commemorate the day after Thanksgiving, and uh, they have another Black Friday release that's hitting the stores very soon right now, and that's the sixth year in a row that they've done this one. This year it's going to be a Nicaraguan Puro and a 5 by 5 6 by 46 Corona Gorda. Um, and these cigars in the last few years have been more anticipated as HBC has been kind of slowly growing as a company and getting more well known. So no, nothing, against, nothing against him, he makes great product. Just in my personal opinion, that may could be be one of the worst names in the industry. I agree. I, I, I Every time I hear it, I feel like I, I want to make a service back. call. Right? right? Yeah. Right. You've got to make a service call. Back. My my, my HBC went down. Yeah. 
<laughs> Coop, yeah, I have a question. I have a question. Coop, can you fill us in on the – I know there was Creed Tech news. There was a yeah. little buzz this week about a partnership that it seemed like some people kind of got hot over. Yeah, it. here's what was interesting. So the TM, TMG, which is Tobacco Media Group, it's the group that owns the TPE trade show, they made a series of announcements this week. Um, if you kind of read between the lines with that announcement, there were a lot of – it was a little bit of a passive-aggressive message there. Um, and it's kind of showing, I think, that the two trade shows are getting ready to go to war since they're going to be right now. First thing, they kind of came out and said they're aligning themselves with Cigar Association of America, which is a company, which is an organization that there's a, a lot of larger cigar manufacturers are a part of. Big Four is included in that. And, you know, the Big Four have moved away from the um, the PCA trade show. So they didn't quite announce what that means, but I'm, I'm assuming they're going to have a little more input into the, the trade show, the TPE trade show. It's obviously they're, they're, they're making a point of announcing that. Cretech was also, by the way, which is a company that owns TMG. They had pulled out of the PCA trade show in 2020 as well. So they kind of aligned themselves with, with the with the big four. So that was kind of in there. And then they announced that they were taking all the seminars that they normally do before the trade show, making them virtual with the idea of expanding the selling time on the TPE trade show floor. So you take those things together and you're kind of saying TPE is getting ready to go head to head with PCA. And they're they're um, you know, I, I see the battle line starting to get drawn with this. The fact you have two shows 10 weeks apart, it's, it's how are they not going to compete with each other? Right. I, I personally never saw it. You know, I, I, me personally, I know guys have gone, uh, retailers have gone. I know Jeff uh, has been there. I talked to him about it a few times. I just never saw a reason for me as a premium, a guy in the premium cigar business to go to TPE. It just seemed like a, I, I didn't think there was going to be anything I was going to get out of TPE that I wouldn't have gotten out of the PCA or IPCPR or RTDA or whatever it was, whatever it is at the time. Um, and I just don't understand it. So I, I don't think it. I, I think a properly and efficiently well-run um, PCA would make it a non-issue because I just don't think they're really the same same show and 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 do the same service to the industry. What I'm seeing though, and I'm watching the floor plan of TPE, there the tobacco and it's divided between tobacco and non-tobacco products. This year, there's a lot more booze signed up on the tobacco side and, and the non-tobacco, given the problems that end of the industry is having, namely around vape and uh, e-liquids and all that, I, I'm seeing some of that floor space a little more empty right now than I would have compared to last year. Here's, so think, here, yeah. here's where the problem is going to lie. The, yeah. the TPE is attractive to manufacturers more than it is to retailers. As a retailer, I see no need to be there. As a manufacturer, I do. If you want to get into maybe some B stores and C stores, get some of these guys who maybe don't carry premium cigars to carry it, it might be a good show to go to. But on the same note, it's very hard to differentiate yourself if you're trying to carve yourself out as a premium cigar business and a premium cigar manufacturer and then go to a show that basically is dominated by everything that we're trying to segregate ourselves from. So right. I think that's where eventually long-term it's going to come to a head because as a manufacturer, if you choose to try to go to, after that market, that B and C store market, because you don't need to go to the TPE to sell to A retailers, you know, and most B retailers really. So um, 
if, if you really want to make the segregation in the premium cigar industry, say we're not like these people, it's kind of a hard statement to make if you're selling stuff at their show. Yeah, I, I, I Abe, I'm on board with that too. The other thing is to note with PCA, look, we could we can Monday morning quarterback the PCA forever. There's still the trade show that they exist. They put everything back into you know supporting the industry, where TPE is more of a profit model with Cretech. It's a different model. So, you know, I, I'd love to see maybe people try to make the P, the PCA trade show better because that is our industry's trade show. It does go everything goes back in for funding and everything with that with with these battles. And look, they've had some success PCA recently, especially with some of the court cases, um, and they deserve some credit for that. Um, so. You know, I I kind of have a little bit of an issue with, you know, just I wouldn't abandon the, the PCA yet. They need the support right now. Yeah. Anything else going on, Coop? Um, that's it for this week. What what's that what's what's in the multitude of podcasts this week on, on <laughs> Yeah. I'm on, a, I'm on like a marathon of podcasts through Tuesday. <laughs> so uh I got Bears podcast tomorrow night I'm a guest on, El Oso Fumar takes. Uh, we're recording our primetime jukebox, which is our music podcast uh, tonight, uh, which is actually we're doing uh, covering Aretha Franklin's Lady Soul album. Uh, Monday, I'm doing a podcast uh, with a guy who is a former St. Louis Rams executive who has this podcast called Pylons and Sticks, which is a football and cigars podcast, which I've been pretty impressed with what they're doing. Oh, that's cool. And then yeah. I got my two other podcasts uh, this week with uh, Tony Bellotto on Tuesday and uh, Saga Cigars on Thursday. So it's a, it's a full week for me. I'm sure it is. Um, well, listen, I really want to thank everybody for being involved. Ernesto, two hours isn't even enough. Yep. I want to <laughs> congratulate you on the pledge. The pledge, the pledge has been fire. Uh, selling uh, off the shelves as quickly as it comes in. Um, in fact, Paul, there's a promotion on the pledge I, I didn't even know about until... Until we were doing research on the show, why don't you show this humor? I guess any you and Lisette have signed six cigar bands. Correct. So anybody yeah. who purchases a cigar or a box of cigars and comes across one of these bands that are signed, this is the prize they're getting, this this Rosewood Humidor, this uh, EPC Humidor and uh, Cutter and Lighter looks like, yes? That is correct. And uh, I want to say that there's still, there's still, I believe there's still, um, a few humidors left because we're coming out with a second now offering of the um, of the pledge, probably starting in November. Uh, so you know, be be on the lookout for those bands with my uh, signature on the back because you know you'll get this uh, beautiful gifts. Yep, so, there's still some available out there. So yeah, congratulations on it. Uh, it's yeah. a, it's a big hit, being extremely well received and talked about by uh, everybody I know who's tried it. And as a manufacturer, that's always got to be great to hear. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's something, you know, this is something that, uh, uh, you know, basically was done, uh, you know, by the, you know, our group here in Miami. And, uh, you know, I, wanna, I want to uh, take a moment because, you know, I'm, I'm being interviewed and, and I think there's so many people that uh, have made it possible for me to, to kind of be the, the face of, of the company, if you want to call it that. And, you know, I guess I have to start, you know, with, with my kids, you know, Lisette, Ernie. Uh, David, Spurt, uh, Salim, who's with us, you know, Michael, uh, John, and Scott, Leo down here in Miami, then in Dominican. I got, you know, I got a group of people that, let me tell you this, I haven't been in Dominican since March 11th. 
And I'm starting to worry. I'm starting to worry because the factory is running so perfectly. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to get scared that I'm not needed there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I, so, I mean, needless to say, that only happens because I have great people down there. You know, we have, you know, one of the best groups in Dominican that anybody can wish for. And it's because of them that, you know, the pledge, you know, the the encore, everything that you know, that we've come out, you know, with and has been successful because, you know, they've been able to, uh, to you know, see into my vision and keep that, you know, that strict thing that I always look for in a cigar, you know, the quality, you know, the, the blends, you know, the tobaccos and, um, you know, without them, it, uh, I don't think I'd be able to, uh, you know, be here and, and maybe be doing this part, this, this uh, thing today, so. Well, do me a favor. Yeah. Don't let it go that long before we have you on again. Definitely. It was way, way I'm, long. I'm, yeah. Listen, I'm I'm always available, you know, because uh, I think that nowadays uh, I don't travel that much. I never have. And I think this is a great opportunity now, uh, you know, for, you know, people to, you know, kind of get to know me a little bit better. You know what, you know, what we're about, what my company's about. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Please. Anytime you, you guys, uh, you know. Absolutely, you know, and Coop, I don't have to tell you, you know, how you know how we did this, I think, this year also, right? Coop, yeah, we did that uh, as well. We had a great, yeah, to the beginning of the year. So, that's the yeah. one nice thing about, I mean, not there was really anything nice about the pandemic, but one of the good things that came out of it was a lot of people become a lot more available and sharing their stories and doing a lot more media stuff. So, it's great for everybody. Absolutely. I want to thank all our loyal listeners and, and fans. I like to call you guys our KMA crew. Thank you for joining us, taking time out of your Saturday morning, sitting here with us, having a cigar on KMA Talk Radio. Ernesto, a pleasure. My man, always keep up the work, teaser free, and uh, everybody have a great weekend. Next week, Juan Lopez, Gurkha Cigars. We'd like, we're going to discuss what the state of, uh, what the current state of affairs is over at Gurkha Cigars. So be should, Juan's always a great guest and it should be an interesting show. So oh, yeah. have a great weekend. Keep it lit. Peace. Keep it lit, everyone.